0: I want to start our time uh, with a question. I want you to answer this in your in your mind, not out loud, and I don't want you to overthink it. I just want you to to think in your mind, this is the first thing that that, that comes to me as I answer this question. Are you ready? What's the biggest story in the news right now? What's the biggest story? If I grab the New York Times or the Washington Post or the, the LA Times this morning and open it up, what's on the cover? Most likely, you thought about the war in Ukraine, you thought about COVID, maybe you thought about inflation or gas prices. There's a lot going on in the world, a lot of chaos happening right now to think of. But what if I told you that the biggest story of all, the biggest story of all this morning is not being covered by a single member of the mainstream media? Uh Uh-oh, Jeff's going off on some weird conspiracy theory, Right? (laughs) No, I I saw some of your faces, but no, not at all. The biggest story happening in our world today is that sinful human beings are being saved for all eternity. You don't hear much about that on cable news. You won't get that on TV stations. Every day, though, people scattered across our world, men and women who've been marked out by God, are being drawn out of darkness, forgiven of their sins, justified in God's sight, and entering into eternal life. Now, it's the biggest story because think about how far-reaching the implications of that is. It'll far outlast Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It will far outlast COVID or anything else that you're going to see in the news today or tomorrow. And even as Christ followers, it's interesting, we don't, we don't often think that way, but we should. Because of all people, we know how meeting Jesus can change a life. As we survey our world today, the question that seems to be in all of our minds is, why is Jesus delaying his return? Today seems like a great day to come back and to set right all the things that seem so out of whack. But here's the reason for his delay. And we should praise God for that. Because there's more news to be made. There are more sheep to be called into the fold. And we should praise him for that. When the day comes that the entire flock is at last gathered into the fold, then the great shepherd will return. And then that day, all the earth's news and all the things, all the politics, all the things that we get wrapped up in so often these days, all of it will fade away into the mist of time. Truly, the most important historical thread of all time is the story of God's unfolding plan of salvation. The story of a shepherd who is willing to die for his sheep and then calls them out to follow him right into heaven. No story compares. So grab your Bibles. Let's open to John chapter 10. We've been out of the flow of the narrative for a couple weeks now, right? We've been focusing on some big ideas that come out of the imagery of this chapter. And the imagery here is so beautiful, right? It really is. Two Sundays ago, we talked about the foundational relationship between sheep and shepherds in the local church, how important that is. And then last Sunday, we looked at sort of this idea of what the abundant life that Jesus is talking about in verse 10. What does that look like and where can it be found? Now, both of those messages, we, we stalled for two weeks to, to cover those things because your elder team really felt like those were practical messages. And so if you missed either one of them, I would strongly encourage you to go to our YouTube page and listen to those because it will give you a snapshot of the heart of this local church. All right, find verse 11. Let's recall the setting that we're in, right? City of Jerusalem, under the suspicious and watchful eyes of the Pharisee, Pharisees. Jesus has just healed a man who was born blind. And he did it on the Sabbath, didn't he? And that sent the religious establishment into an absolute tizzy. And then so we walked through the interrogations of this formerly blind man, the interrogation of his family, then his post-miracle interaction with Jesus, the man who healed him. And now over these first 10 verses of chapter 10, Jesus has been talking, drawing this very stark contrast between true shepherds and false shepherds. And we pick it up in verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd is not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves or abandons the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about or does not care about the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment, or simply this command, I have received from my Father. Verse 19, a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings or words of one who is demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? We'll leave it with a question. All right, so I want to cover two massive themes that come out of this particular text, these 11 verses. One is sovereignty, and the other is sacrificial love. Those are two themes that serve as the foundation of what I just described as the most important news story each and every day. Jesus continues to save human beings from their sin. Without sovereignty and without sacrificial love, those things would not be possible. So I want to start by taking a deep look at the key verse, and you probably know this already, verse 16, sitting in the middle of the passage. Let's take a look at this. I have other sheep, Jesus says, which are not of this fold or not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice. So you may know this is one of the great missionary texts of the New Testament, right? It's an obvious reference to the Gentiles. Gentiles, as opposed to Jews, are the other sheep that Jesus is talking about here. So you see in this declaration the foundation of what's to come later and that is the Great Commission. Of Matthew 28 Jesus I have other sheep I have to bring them and then Matthew 28 we see go right go and bring this gospel to all nations the two ideas are connected together fact one of the great uh, Christian missionaries of all time David Livingstone who took the gospel deep into Africa in the 19th century this verse is engraved on his tombstone it was what marked his life this idea that there are other sheep that need to be called into the fold. What's interesting, you see the pictures up there. He, he passed away in, was it 1873, in modern day Zambia. And his African friends, before his body was shipped back to England, they removed his heart and buried it there in Zambia as a, as a representation, a symbol of his great love for the African people. And then they shipped his body back to Westminster Abbey where he was interned. And you can see the John 10, 16 there on the left side of his tomb marker. The picture on the left is where his heart is buried. So this is a very important verse for every missionary out there. Now, why are we so sure that Jesus is speaking of the Gentiles when he talks about other sheep? Well, if you go back to the very first few verses of chapter 10, you're going to see that Jesus first mentions this idea of a sheepfold or a, a sheep pen, Right? And recall that we identified that first fold as Israel. Israel. And the door to that fold that's open to Jesus, it's open for one reason, because of his credentials as Israel's Messiah. That's why the door, he's the true shepherd. The door is open to him because of his identity as the Messiah. So he is able to enter into that fold as the true shepherd and to call out his elect sheep from among ethnic Israel. Remember, that was Jesus' primary mission when he came to earth, we often forget this. He says it himself, to seek and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Israel is the first fold. And of course, Paul agrees with this. When Paul writes later to the Romans, very Gentile church, he says in Romans 1.16 that the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel to save everyone, he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Jesus, having focused all of his time up until this point on Israel, he now says, declares this publicly, there is another sheepfold beside this one, beside Israel, and I have sheep there too. So what he's doing here is declaring what we call in the Bible a mystery to his audience that day. And by mystery, I'm talking about not something brand new, something that had been decreed from before the foundation of the world, but was being revealed to that particular people within time and space. Paul describes it in Ephesians 3, right? He says, The mystery of Christ, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That would have been a shocking statement to the Jews listening that day. Now, if they'd been thinking historically and theologically, it would not have been a surprise to them because the Gentiles had always been included. In God's plan. Going back to Genesis 22, right? What does it say? Abraham was to be a blessing to all nations, not just to Israel. But the problem was that had been lost through generations and generations of Jewish pride. Knowing that they were God's chosen people, they had been sanctified as his people, the Jews had come to believe that they were morally superior to every other people group on the earth. Every one of them. The Gentiles, in fact, in their minds, were no better than dogs fit for condemnation. That was the mindset in Israel at this time. And of course, this is what Paul then takes great pains to correct in the opening chapters of the book of Romans, right? Yes, he says, the Jews are given many advantages. Think about all the advantages they had to know God. And yet, he says, they're no less sinful than the Gentiles and equally in need of forgiveness, that can only come through faith in Christ. And then later in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul explains God's whole plan to bring Jew and Gentile together into one body. And he uses this beautiful imagery of of this wild olive shoot that represents the Gentiles that gets grafted into an already established olive tree, which represents Israel. So we're grafted into that tree. The tree's already there, right? Israel. But we as Gentiles get grafted in. That is something that only God could conceive of. Mankind never would have come up with that plan, and only God could have accomplished it. And so that means, as Paul writes later in Colossians 3, there is now no distinction between Greek and Jew, between circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, the poor Scythians. Man, they they get called out here, right? Barbarians, Scythians, slave and freemen, but Christ is all and in all. Peter also would write about the same miracle in 1 Peter chapter 2. Gentiles were once not a people. They've been shut out from Israel, right? But through this process of ingrafting, he says, "Now you are the people of God." Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what a beautiful truth that is. I can tell you as as a French Irish Gentile, I'm extremely grateful that God's mercy was extended beyond Israel to the ends of the earth. Anybody else? Absolutely. Okay, so on to big theme number one, sovereignty. Let me set this up, because as, you read the, as we read through that passage, you may not have seen this. It's not as obvious as you might have thought it would be, but let me set this up by just reminding you that there are many progressive theologians today who for decades have tried to make the case that Paul teaches a form of the gospel that isn't quite in line with what Jesus taught. It's actually quite a devious plan on the part of the enemy to try to divide and conquer, to put a gap of space between Jesus and Paul so that we doubt the gospel. So, for example, they will often say that Jesus taught this very open, universal, Arminian-styled message of salvation. And then when you open up Paul's letters, you see this obviously strong language about God's sovereignty over salvation. And they would say, see, it's clear that they had different ideas about how people are saved. And of course, that's a lie from the pit of hell, right? And it denies the very doctrine of inspiration that we trust in. But still, many have tried to make that case primarily because the flesh of man and the pride of man recoils at the idea of predestination. We simply don't like it. We prefer salvation be, be man-centered, not God-centered. Naturally, we want to have control over our eternal destiny. We want to be able to shake our fist and say, I chose God, not that God chose me. That's the heart of man, the pride of man. But to the chagrin of many progressives, this passage in John 10 is one of many places, if you look, where you'll see Jesus use language that is unmistakably bent towards election and predestination, the very thing that Paul teaches in all of his letters to the churches. So there is no gap between them, but we got to look and see it. So take a look again at verse 16 and listen carefully to the certainty of Jesus' words here. There is no uncertainty in what he's saying. He's not like, I hope that these other sheep are going to hear my voice. I'm just really hopeful that when I go over there that they'll respond to my voice. There's no uncertainty there. So first of all, he says this, and this is very clear. I have other sheep. Present tense, I have them, he says. Jesus has other sheep. Even before they hear his voice, he has them. Even before they have a chance to respond to that voice, Jesus says, I have them. Long before he reveals himself to this other fold, long before most of them are even born, The implication is Jesus has this other group of sheep that already belong to him. That's important to see. In the previous verse, he said, I know my own. Same idea. He calls his own sheep together, Jew and Gentile. But before he calls them, he says, they are mine. I have them. It's very important to see. Now, how is that possible? Well, the answer is, and we saw it earlier in John chapter 6, is that these sheep that are marked out already belong to God the Father. And it's God the Father who gives these particular sheep to the Son to be saved. Maybe you remember this back in chapter 6. Jesus said this, All that the Father gives to me will, no uncertainty, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Not, I hope they'll come. Well, God gave me a bunch of sheep and I really hope they'll hear my voice. And I really hope they'll listen to me. None of that. They will come. We're going to see the same thing when we get to John 17 in about six years. We're going to, to, that was for Adam. We're going to see the very same truth. Look what it says. Jesus is now praying to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And again, this is exactly in line with how Paul will speak of God's divine election. Ephesians 1.4, for example, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Chose us. So that means that God's elect from both folds, Jew and Gentile, have always belonged to the Father, even before time began. It was decreed from the very beginning. And now what's happening is we're seeing all of that plan, that great decree of God unfolding within time and space. It's beautiful. We get to be observers of God's decree just unfolding. Because of his sovereignty. What a, what a privilege that is, right? Now there's more back in verse 16. Look at the phrase, I must bring them also. I must, he says. It's, this is this, what we call the divine necessity. He must do it. Why? Because God has decreed it. And if God has decreed it, it must come to pass. So there, again, there's no uncertainty here. Before time began or the foundations of the world were put in place, God marked out these particular sheep. They belong to the Father, and now the Son is about to lay down his life particularly for them. He will lay his life down. And he says, they, I will bring them. They must be brought. And in fact, knowing the Trinitarian nature of God as we do, it's inconceivable, think about this, that God would mark out a particular group of sheep that he would then give them to the Son, and the Son would say, yeah, I'll try to bring them, or I'll bring some of them. It's inconceivable. Because the heart of the Son and the Father are so inextricably linked. He'll bring every one of us. And then there's this. We see Jesus say with great authority, they will hear my voice. All of the sheep will, not hopefully they'll hear my voice, not hopefully they'll respond. Each particular sheep in the flock that belongs to God, they will hear. They will listen and they will come out. Why? Why? because what we've seen already, because they recognize the voice of their shepherd. Now, look, this is the backstory to how every person in this room was saved. And I know we all have a different story, but I remember hearing the voice of my shepherd the day before I wasn't listening. And then suddenly I was listening and I, I I couldn't explain it. I just know that... Something was happening in my heart. I couldn't explain it, but now I was hearing the voice of my shepherd and I responded out of love. Now I know the backstory, right? Now I know exactly how that took place. Again, I'm not denying that I chose him. I did. I, in that moment, I wanted to love Jesus. I wanted him in my life. But the backstory is, God was doing all that work in my heart to cause me to love him, to cause me to hear the voice of my shepherd. Now, what if someone doesn't hear Jesus' voice? What does that mean? Well, if you drop your eyes down to verse 26, we'll be in here next week, you see the answer. This is hard. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna gonna warn you, this is tough. The Jews asked Jesus if he is the Messiah, and he says, look, I've already told you. You just don't believe. And verse 26, he says, why? You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Do you see the sovereignty in this? Believing, this is a hard one, believing does not make you a part of Jesus' flock. Being part of Jesus' flock enables you to believe. We've got to get the timing and the order correct there. Let me say it again. Believing doesn't make you a part of Jesus' flock. Being a part of Jesus' flock enables you or empowers you to believe. So the person with that Arminian bent says, well, from your own heart and your own strength, you believed and you became a part of God's flock. The sovereigntist says the opposite. If you're one of God's flock, he is going to empower you and enable you to believe. So it's an issue of priority and it's an issue of power. And you've got to understand this. Does an unrighteous man, a sinner, unrighteous man have the power to incline himself towards God out of his own moral strength? The Bible says no. And, and I could show you a whole bunch of verses, but Romans 3, 10, and 11 makes it Probably the most clear, Paul says, there is none righteous, none of us. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks after God, Paul affirms. And after all we've studied in this series about spiritual blindness, this should be obvious. Blind people don't seek after God. And spiritually dead people can't raise themselves to life because they're, they're dead. They're dead. So that means God has to do work in the heart of man first. He is the priority and he is the power in salvation. And if he's marked you out as a member of his flock, he is going to come and he's going to transform your heart, the affections of your heart. He's going to take away that blindness and he's going to bring you to life. That's why none of us has any reason to boast when we get to heaven (laughs) because it was all his work. You see how that fits together? That's so important to understand. And then and only then will you have the power to turn to the good shepherd and be saved and follow him. It's his work from beginning to end. Sovereignty. I mean, it's all over this passage, but again, people won't see it. They'll go, this is really a sweet passage about shepherd and sheep. This is great. See the language here. See how sovereign God is in salvation. Okay, second big theme. Let's look at sacrificial love. Now, I made this point a couple weeks ago, but let me repeat it. The primary characteristic of the good shepherd is that he loves unto death. He doesn't just love, he loves to the point of death. Whenever you see ideas repeated in scripture, friends, if they're said over and over again, know that God is doing that on purpose. It's not some, oh, Paul just you know, was writing, in, or John was writing in circles. No, it's there because God wants you to see it and understand it. It's important to him. Four times in just eight verses that we read, we see the same theme. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I laid down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Verse 18, I have authority to lay my life down. The disciples could never get over this truth, that Jesus would die for their sins. And and the reason I say that is because you see in verse after verse, men like Paul and John and Peter and James referring to this sort of single penultimate idea that God in the flesh would die for their sins. They're utterly amazed that one so perfect in love and so perfect in judgment would take their place on that cross. And by the way, friends, if that doesn't amaze you every day of your life, then it's possible that your eyes are focused too much on what's down here, on things that are seen. You need to lift your eyes and look at the things that are eternal, the things that are unseen. Never get away from this truth. This is what uniquely marks the heart of the good shepherd. He loves unto death. That makes him, by the way, the antithesis of the hired hand, right? That's what we saw in this passage. He doesn't care about the sheep. The hired hand doesn't care. He's all about himself, To him, the sheep are a means to an end. That's it. So when he sees danger come and he's like, this isn't worth it, and he takes off, he flees. But the good shepherd does the opposite. This is so beautiful, right? The good shepherd looks at his flock, us, and he sees danger coming, and he puts himself in between his sheep and that danger and he lays down his life. That's what makes him so special. It is always worth our time to look at all the ways that God has loved us in Christ. And, and, and the goal is, this is Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19. What a goal this is, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints together, right? What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which frankly surpasses knowledge that we may be filled up to the fullness of God what an amazing goal that is that that's may make that a life verse that that is what i want to comprehend the totality of god's love for me in christ by the way it's really hard to do something that surpasses knowledge isn't it <laughs> i mean you almost see the impossibility of that on this side of heaven someday we'll see it face to face and know it completely But in the meantime, this should be our goal to steadily grow in this year after year in our comprehension of how Christ has loved us and how he continues to love us, by the way. It's not just eternal, it's now as well, how he loves us. And if you do that consistently, you're gonna end up just like Paul and John and James and Peter, just amazed, just standing in awe of how God has loved you. So a couple things. Consider, first of all, the costliness of his love for you. Look again at the end of verse 15. He lays down his life for the sheep. That's the same simple truth of Ephesians 5.2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That for means in your place. It means for your benefit he did this. That for, frankly, puts us in the same camp as that, that man who was born blind. And receive something from Jesus that was a pure act of grace. Remember we studied his life? He's just begging. He didn't even ask Jesus to do anything. Jesus just sees him and and heals him. We're in that same camp. We're, We're just like that. It means that Jesus saw us and interceded for us, living in spiritual blindness. And he did something for us on our behalf that we could never do for ourselves. We had no ability to do for ourselves to have spiritual sight and spiritual life. And he didn't just sacrifice, you know, a little bit for us. You know, some of his time or some of his energy or some of his comfort, he gave everything. He gave far more than any of us can imagine because remember, being in the very nature of God, he was willing to take on human form and a human nature. And then he enjoyed no creature comforts here on the earth, He wasn't received by his own people. He wasn't honored by them. He suffered nothing but hatred and false accusations and threats and betrayal. Then he literally became sin on our behalf and then he physically gave up his body and shed his blood. That's everything. Not just a little bit, that's everything. And when he did that, it wasn't in some quick, easy way, but in the most horrible, prolonged way. Suffering both the humiliation of a Roman cross, and the agony as well. It's the greatest act of selfless love in the history of the world, by a long shot. By a long shot. Nothing is ever compared to it, and nothing ever will, but that is why he is the good shepherd. Not good just in the, well, he's better than most, but good in the sense of his soaring, transcendent excellence and beauty. That's why we sing songs to his name, right? Right? That's why. So, after you've considered the costliness of his love, then you've got to consider this how little you deserve it. Because those two things go hand in hand, right? Calvin called it the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. It's great to, to know how great and good the shepherd is, but you also got to know how depraved you are. I mean, I know that's a hard truth and it's not often taught, but we've got to know this. Imagine this truth from Romans 5:6. Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. Paul continues. Look, it, he says, it's possible, possible that a human being might die for somebody that they deem you know, good or noble. That's possible. But this is what sets the cross apart from everything else. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards you and I in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And when we read that at first glance, you might miss the depth of that statement. Don't read that as, when we were less than perfect, Christ died for us. Or when we weren't as sold out for God as we should have been, Christ died for us. No. The weight of that statement is this. While we were morally repugnant, lovers of self and haters of God, the very enemies of God, that's when Christ stepped in and put himself between us and danger and laid down his life. It's incomprehensible. That's why we can spend a lifetime trying to comprehend it. It surpasses our knowledge, yet we're going to keep striving to understand the great love that God had for us in Christ. Amen? But there's more. (laughs) Consider then how free and voluntary his love was for you. How free and voluntary. When somebody does something for you, does it matter what the motivation was? Think about that for a second. Somebody serves you. Does it matter why they're serving you? It does. I mean, are they serving you because they've got a contract to fulfill, right? In business, there's a contract, so, okay, they're doing something for me. Okay, that's, that's great. Or they, they owe you a debt, so they're repaying that, and you're like, eh, it feels a little awkward, but okay, it's a debt. Right? Or they're serving you because somebody said, hey, Go go serve that guy. That matters, doesn't it? The motivation? It's always nice to be served, but those types of motivations don't really speak to our hearts to really convey free and voluntary love. The more willing and glad and free one's love is, the more amazing and deep that love is. And this is the case with Jesus. Look at verse 18. He says it himself. Verse 18, I lay down my life on my own initiative. I lay down my life myself. That's amazing. It's the freedom of Christ's love that amazes us, that as God, he was willing to to suffer and die in our place, that he wasn't forced into it in any way. And so we read in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's that joy? That he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. The same particular sheep that had been given to him by the Father for the joy set before him so that you and I might join him in heaven someday, he endures the cross freely and voluntarily. That is amazing love. Finally, one more thing. Think about the lavish benefits of his love. Think about the benefits. Here we could just talk about eternity, right? Because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about eternity. And that would be enough. But see how this passage speaks to an intimacy of relationship that is both now and forever. It's now as well. How Christ's love brings us into an intimacy with God that is beyond our comprehension. Look at the end of verse 14. Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. Now listen to the comparison. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Contemplate that parallel for just a moment. And how amazing that is. We know how tight the bond is between the Father and the Son. It's one heart, one in every way. It's an unbreakable bond. And here Jesus draws a parallel between that closeness, that closeness of relationship that he has with the Father. He draws that parallel to the way he knows you. (laughs) Are you kidding me? So we see here this beautiful chain of love being laid out in the scriptures. Earlier we read this from, a, this is our call to worship this morning from 1 John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and so we are. So yeah, we're, you know, sometimes we get a little offended. Ah, I keeps calling us sheep. That doesn't feel great. Sheep aren't that great. <laughs> but we're so much more than just sheep, right? Through the Son, God says, I've adopted you as my own. You are my children. And he promises that as members of the family, we're also fellow heirs of all things with sort of our older brother, Jesus. Amazing. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life. Now, get this. The father has always loved the son. That is not in question. But what you see in this verse, I think, is a special delight that the father has in his son because he's laying down his life for this flock that they both love. There's a special delight here, a, a special expression. And in the midst of that expression of the father's love toward the son, the son brings that same measure of love to the cross to die for you so that he can lavish these benefits upon us, giving us both eternal life and intimate fellowship with him. There's this chain of love here. The father, get this, the father loves the son for loving us. That's why we sing this song, right? How deep the father's love for us. He loves the son because the son loves us. It's a chain of love that comes down through the Trinitarian nature of God to us as his children. It's incomprehensible. Now, one last important thing, which has to be seen here, or else I'd, I'd be failing you as an exegete. When we speak about the attributes of Christ, our minds often go to what I just talked about, and, and it should, to his sacrificial nature. But you've got to always hold the attributes of God in balance. He's not more one thing and less than another, right? He's 100% of all of his attributes, so we've got to know that. Well, Although Jesus laid aside the voluntary use of his attributes when he took on flesh, that's what it means that he he laid aside his glory. He gave up his voluntary use of his God attributes while living in the flesh. But he never ceased to be fully God. And I know that blows our minds. But look, look at verse 17. He retains the power of God. He says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Wait, what? So that I may take it up again? He says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Now, wow, stop and think about that for a second. What human being says that? Imagine being a Pharisee and you're hearing him say that. This is why at the end of the passage, they're like, this dude is raving mad. Because if you don't know the, sh- the sound of the voice of your shepherd and you hear a statement like that, you're like, woo gone. Dude is nuts, Right? What kind of person says publicly, I can raise my own life from the dead? Anybody can lay down his life, by the way, right? Sadly, we see people commit suicide all the time, but who has the power to raise it up? Who makes that type of prediction? It's wild. And so, and how many times have we seen this already? Once more, mankind, as you read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, you have this agonizing choice that you have to make. It's a choice between... Is this guy raving mad or is he who he says he is? Is he God? There's no in between, right? He's either a nut job or he's God in the flesh. Because only God wields this type of power, am I right? He says he has authority. That word exousia in the Greek is so important. The power of authority to do these things, to raise up his own life. And if he's able to do that, then that's plenty of evidence to tell us that he's not just an ordinary man, right? And that's exactly what worried the religious establishment on the day that they heard the tomb is empty. That's why they went into such a panic, because he predicted this very thing, and he pulled it off. The most important thing to see under this this point is that Jesus is saying publicly that he is not a victim In the story that's about to unfold. He has the authority of God. So he's not a victim, right? In spite of all the circumstances swirling around him and the threats of against his life, he's saying this this is exactly the plan that the Father has orchestrated, the same plan that is known to me as the Son. I know this is gonna happen. Who takes Jesus' life? If you were were watching this as an outside observer, like you're going to a play, you'd have a whole cast of characters to choose from. right? Judas. Judas takes his life. Is Judas responsible? Is it the soldiers that go and arrest him? Is it Herod, who's the king, the authority in the land of Judea? Is it Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator who actually sentences him? Is it the, the centurion who hammered the nails into his hands and feet. You've got a whole cast of characters to look at. And the answer is none of the above. Now, they chose to do those things freely and they're responsible for the grievous sin behind his death, am I right? But still, you can hear Jesus' voice come through in this text. It's as if he's saying, lift your eyes and see that my father and I are orchestrating all of this in our timing. For this reason, because we love the flock. So no one takes my life from me, he says, right there in the text. I make a conscious choice to lay it down. So Peter, put away that sword. I appreciate your love, right? Put away the sword. Don't you know that if I asked the Father, he would send 12 legions of angels to stop this from happening? But this is his plan, and it's my plan. And I know it won't come without great suffering, But for the joy set before me, I will step into this plan and I will lay down my life because I love the sheep. Wow. It's a powerful text, isn't it? So let's try to wrap this up. Let me just, this is an amazing thing. In just these 11 verses, we see the account of salvation from beginning to end, guys. First of all, by his language, we see Jesus referring to election from before the foundation of the world, speaking of the sheep that he has that have been given to him by the Father. Then secondly, we see a reference to what's coming, his sacrifice, his sacrificial death on the cross, and the authority that he has to raise his life up again. And by doing so, he delivers his sheep from judgment. And then third, he speaks of the calling of his chosen sheep drawing us out of the fold so that we might follow the Good Shepherd by faith. All three of those pieces just in this text. Election, sacrifice, and calling. This has been God's decreed plan from the beginning. We started this series in John by talking about the decree. All of these things have been decreed before the foundation of the world, world, and they are just being played out in the fullness of time. By the way, this is what God meant when he spoke through the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before this story in John's gospel, God said this, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose, by the way, that's singular, my decree, my decreed purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. It's always been the plan. So, listen, you want to feel loved this morning? You want to feel valued? Maybe you've never thought of this before, but change your perspective. Think of all of the things that God the Son could have done when He came to earth. You you can make a long list of things that He could have done, but what's the one thing He was focused on? Saving you and I, saving His flock. That's His focus. He didn't leave the results up to chance either. He decreed that it would certainly come to pass. My purpose will stand, God said, and I will do all that I please. Could have done so many things when he came to earth, right? Could have have walked around healing everybody and fixing world hunger and doing all those things. His plan was to redeem his particular sheep. That's his love. So have you heard his voice this morning? Have you heard his voice? The crucial matter on the day of judgment will be whether Jesus knows you as one of his flock. And if you're not part of that flock as you sit here this morning, first of all, I'm glad you're here. But second of all, let me just say this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is such an important concept to understand. He resists pride, but he gives grace to those who come to him in humility. So if you are seeking the truth about Jesus this morning, don't let your pride get in the way. Don't get yourself all ruffled like, I don't know if I like this election thing. I'm not sure if I like this idea that God's so in control of everything. Don't let your pride get in the way of discovering the truth about who Jesus claimed to be and what the evidence says that he is exactly who he claimed to be. And I want you to know, the people sitting around you this morning who have trusted in the good shepherd, they're not crazy. They've seen the evidence. They've heard the voice of the shepherd and they followed. It's real. It's real. So talk to them. Talk to anybody here who's met the shepherd. If you're seeking the truth about Christ, stay humble and be teachable and do not give up your pursuit until you find out the truth because there's nothing more worth your time in the days that you have on the earth. Know this also, Jesus always divides people. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of division in the world, right? Go on Twitter. Go on social media. There's a lot of division in the world, but you've got to know when it comes to Jesus, expect there's going to be division. There was on that day in Jerusalem. The end of the passage tells us, look at verse 19. A division occurred again, it says, among the Jews because of these words. We've seen this over and over again. People are divided over Jesus because of his words, because of his works, because of his life. Either you hear his voice and you recognize it and you come out, or you don't. So Jesus divides people into two camps the sheep and the goats. We can't get past it. It is what it is. Christian, how are you seeking to know this shepherd better each and every day? Are you growing in your thankfulness for those two things? for his sovereignty, and for his sacrificial love. And for those of you, my brothers and sisters who are Gentiles, isn't it amazing that not one of us would be sitting here today worshiping God were it not for this passage, were it not for the fact that Jesus said, in my grace I have other sheep, and I must bring them too. Through the authority that he wielded in his own death and resurrection, the gospel broke out beyond the borders of Israel. God didn't have to do that. He wasn't obligated to do that. But the gospel went forth through missionaries like Paul and eventually to North America. Without that, we would all be dead in our sins and bound for hell. Are you thankful? So this is the biggest news story of the day, that there is one flock with one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd, gathered in millions of churches around the world this Lord's Day, March 6, 2022. Men and women from every continent, from countless diverse backgrounds and cultures, all with different skin tones and ethnicities, speaking and praying and singing in all of their unique languages, but all praising the same shepherd, the one shepherd who was willing to die for the sheep. It's the biggest news story of the day. And so today, praise God, there will be people, there already have been today, who for the first time, heard the voice of their shepherd and came out and their sins are forgiven and they are justified in the sight of God and they will be granted eternal life and we will spend eternity with them. That's the big news story. May we never forget. Let's pray. Father, I... uh, I pray this morning that we would not let this language that we read about in this text become just normal, that it become just ordinary in our lives, but that we would see, maybe with fresh eyes this morning, how much you have loved us, how sovereign you are over all of it, how you have worked in our lives, Jesus, how you... We're glad and willing for the joy set before you to endure that suffering for my sins, for our sins. And that you've called us out of this other fold. And we know you weren't obligated to do that, but you desired more sons than daughters. And we're here this morning because of that truth. Help us, Lord, to to maybe even sing differently because of what we've heard this morning, to praise your name with abandon because of your goodness and love. Cause us to do that this morning, to recommit our hearts to worship you with every aspect of our life for your glory. Amen.